Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Daniel, chapter uh, 10, and going down through the first verse of chapter 11. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now on the twenty-fourth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw the great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And suddenly, one having the likeness of the sons of men, touched my lips, that then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, for nor is any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, 
Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, under, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. This is the word of the Lord. The book of Daniel, as we have seen, is broken up into what could be described as character sketches, brief moments in the life of either Daniel or his friends, uh, their events that take place over an extraordinarily long lifetime. Daniel is, at the end of the book, pushing 90. He is decidedly old. Uh, the length of his life could easily make him a century. The book is only 12 chapters long, and we've only seen a few episodes in his life, so there's a lot about Daniel we don't know. But the emphasis here is that it's on character sketches, and this section is no different than the rest, except it's longer. Up till now, we've had a sketch per chapter. Now, because of the length of this vision and the event, this chapter to the end, chapter 10 through 12, is actually all one sketch, all one event, but it's broken up for length. And if you don't read it in total, you may not get the full appreciation for what's being focused on. The main focus of these three chapters is chapter 11, verse 2, down through chapter 12, verse 6, which is the vision proper. This is the one who is principally speaking to Daniel. There's, there's two men, men present. But the principal one talking to Daniel, he brings a message, and that message is in the middle of our focus, which means that this is introductory material. And chapter 12 is effectively prologue material. If you don't know that, you can focus on things that aren't directly focused. But we do have this chapter, this first third before us, and we will look at, we'll look at the introductory material because there is something very, very significant happening here. Before we go into that, though, uh, I have mentioned this before, but... And it's no big secret. Liberals absolutely despise the book of Daniel. They mock it, belittle it, try to make it as fringe a book in the Bible as possible. Uh, Daniel is absolutely hated by liberals. And if you ask them why, they will give you a series of answers uh, none of which are legitimate, but they're not of equal weight, even being illegitimate. About a century ago, it was popular to say, well, Daniel could not have been written during the lifetime of Daniel as presented, because in chapter 3, you have musicians playing for when people are supposed to fall down and worship the great idol, 
And all the instruments mentioned there are Greek instruments. They're not Babylonian instruments, they're Greek. So obviously the writer could not have been writing from the time period of Daniel because you'd have Babylonian instruments. Well, that's quietly been unpacked because in the last century it's become clear the ancient world was as cosmopolitan and international as our own. The ancient world traded in bronze, and while you could get copper for bronze from a number of places, like Egypt and some in Anatolia and such, there was only one place in the ancient world you could get tin, which you had to have to make bronze, and that was actually Afghanistan. And so the Bronze Age Greeks, the Bronze Age Babylonians, the Bronze Age Syrians, the Bronze Age Assyrians, uh, Egyptians, what have you, all of them were going to Afghanistan to get tin. Caravans and trading communities passed through all the nations all the time. Greek uh, carpenters built Egyptian temples just like today, it was an international world. And so that one kind of gets packed away. But uh, there are other things that they bring forward. Daniel lives to be a hundred. Well, whoever heard of that? Well, uh, a number of people. I've had a 105-year-old in my church at one point. Um, the supernatural happens. And that's a particular thing that they don't like. Uh, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 6... You have supernatural elements, and liberals say the supernatural doesn't happen because, in reality, they don't actually believe in a God who does anything in history. So any book that talks about the supernatural, like the Gospels, they don't really believe the historical book, and Daniel is in that train. But the really interesting thing that they bring forward is that it's a book of prophecies, and it, it has to be a marginalized book that was written very late, not in the time period it describes, because there are prophecies in the book, and they are way too accurate. And that's the way the liberals put it. The prophecies are way too accurate. They, they all seem to have come true exactly the way they were described. Well, only somebody after the fact could have been so accurate, well, except for that guy who didn't really understand about Greek instruments. He wasn't accurate, but, you know, he was accurate elsewhere. These prophecies obviously look like somebody looking at history from an outside source and kind of writing it down after the fact, or maybe as an eyewitness, like somebody outside of time who, in fact, is lord of time, predestines time, and could tell you exactly what's going to happen in history, saying somebody like that existed. I mean, that'd be godlike, but, you know. For liberals, it's way, way too accurate. The prophecies up till now have been exceedingly accurate. They have been prophecies, though that have been very symbolic in form. You've had symbols in visions, and the symbols have stood for things that are going to happen. Now we have the prophecy par excellence that liberals will hate even more, because it's not like that at all. Daniel receives a message from the heavens, from God, 
and there's no symbols. It's, there's going to be people, and they're going to do this, and they're going to do that, and they're going to do this, and they're going to do that. It's a historical narrative, and it's very filled with minute facts. And if you begin to study what Daniel's told, every last little bit of it happens by people that history sometimes considers significant, and sometimes they don't. But it is right, right on the mark what's going to happen almost as if a commentator is telling you history that he's so intimately involved in that he knows every detail about. So, liberals hate the book. If you believe that God exists, though, and that God is active in history, and that God knows everything, there is no particular reason to hate the book, though. And that is who we are, and that is where we are, And we enter into this section, verse 10 through 12, and we do so with Daniel telling us what year it is and in what condition he is in. We are told that it is the third year of King Cyrus, and we are told that Daniel is not in a particularly happy frame of mind. He is fasting and mourning And he is doing these things for three whole weeks. That is a very rigorous morning. That is a very solid fasting, especially if you happen to be around 90. Something is really bothering Daniel, or he wouldn't be doing that. Uh, Fasting is an occasional spiritual practice. What I mean by that is, There's no statement in the scripture that says, no, on the third and on the fifth and on the seventh month you will fast. You fast when your heart is broken. You fast when you want to approach God in deep humility because there's a a, a sorrow, a, a, uh, a bad thing happening. And it must be pretty bad because this is three weeks long. What's happening in the third year of the reign of Cyrus. Well, the scholars who put together the Geneva Bible will point out something that the original readers would have known, because they would have known the history. Uh, this is a very significant year. He noteth the third year, because at this time the building of the temple began to be hindered by Cambries, Cyrus' son, when the father made war in Asia Minor against the Scythians, which was a discouraging to the godly, a great fear to Daniel. What that means is that we started in the book of Daniel with Daniel as a very young man and being brought away in one of the first waves of the exile. We're now after the exile. Jeremiah's 70 years have come and gone And the prophets have promised God's people, after 70 years, my wrath will be assuaged, and I will bring back a remnant to the promised land. I will give you again my worship. The temple that has been destroyed will be rebuilt. Uh, It would be very easy if you were a worshiper of God to view this in very glorious terms. God has said, after 70 years, we're going back to the promised land the temple will be rebuilt, and everything will be glorious and wonderful. And that's not exactly what's happening. 
To pick up the story in the uh, promised land as these events are happening, you go to the book of Ezra, chapter 4, and Ezra the scribe tells us what's happening in this, this year. In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation, they being non-covenant people, people who hate God's people, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes also, Bishlam, Mithadath, Tabal, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. Rehum, the commander, and Shishmai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in this fashion. From Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their companions, representatives of the Dinites, the Afro something or others, the Templites, the people of Persia, the Ezric, and Babylon, and Shushan, and Davites, and Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Snapper took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria, and the remainder beyond the river, and so forth. This is a copy of the letter they sent him. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river, and so forth. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing its foundations. Let it now be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished." Now, because we received support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king. The search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records to know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and that they have incited sedition within the city in former times, for which cause this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. So, the building of the city, with its focus on the building of the temple, the restoration of godly worship, which had been so glorious in presentation, the worldly people want to stop that, and they send a letter to the powers that be, and this is the answer. The king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, to Shimshai, the scribe, to the rest of their companions who dwell in Samaria, and to the remainder beyond the river, peace, and so forth. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me, and I gave the command, and a search has been made, and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings, and rebellion and sedition have been foistered in it. They have also been, there have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the region beyond the river, and tax, tribute, and custom were paid to them. 
Now give the command to make these men cease, that the city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings? Now when the copy of King Xerxes' letter was read before Ruam, Shimshai, and the, the scribe and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made them cease. Thus the work of the house of God which is at Jerusalem ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia, which was a very long time. So you've got the promises of God that the temple will be rebuilt. You've got the work being begun. God cannot fail in his promises. The people are filled with uh, a certain joy, And then the world rains on their parade, pretty good and proper, and for years, the work on the city and the temple is stopped. And the stoppage begins in the third year of Darius, which we're at in our passage, and Daniel is fasting and mourning for three weeks. It's fairly obvious what he's mourning about. It looks like the work of God is frustrated by the worldlings. The worldlings have great power. Uh, They have stepped in. They have frustrated God's people who are wanting to rebuild God's temple. They are wanting to reestablish a true worship of God on the biblical pattern. This is what God promised, and now the Persians are saying no, and they allow the enemies of God's people to come in with force of arms and stop the building. Daniel is rightly to be in mourning. But an angel comes and answers his petitions, although we have not heard any petitions, uh, fasting and mourning are effectively a form of prayer. Mourning itself, we're told that God hears the, 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 the tears of his people. Are they not recorded in my own bottle? Do I not gather your tears and actually have a record of all of them because I have them? When you're mourning before God and you're fasting, which is something that Christians should do if you go to the Gospels, Jesus says there's times to do that, uh, it's a form of prayer that goes beyond words. It is a cry out to God from a broken and contrite heart, you don't even know what to say. You can't say. Your heart's so broken so much. Well, that's a petition, and an angel comes to answer Daniel. But this is not like any angel we have met yet in the book of Daniel. There are a number of things that are very unique about this one. Listen again to verse 5 and 6 from our focus passage. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with the gold of Ophaz. His body was like beryl, which is an element. It's, it's uh, hard and gleaming. His face like the appearance of lightning. So, you know, that's pretty obvious. His eyes like torches of fire. His arms and feet like burnished bronze in color. 
and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. Now, the chapter before, we met Gabriel. And Gabriel is not exactly a light angelic personage. Gabriel is the messenger of God. He is glorious. He's an angel. But he was described as being like a man. This doesn't sound like most people you would run into. If you run into somebody whose face is like lightning and their eyes are on fire, you're going to talk about the rest of the day. That's not natural. This is a glorious angel, and Daniel falls down before him. He falls down on his face. And it's described as his face is asleep, He's down on his hands and knees, prostrate in a, uh, act, uh, a form of worship. He's, he's down bowing, effectively. And he's knocked out by the glory. And when this has happened elsewhere in the Bible, when, when God's people have fallen down in a sense of worship before an angel, what do the angels do? It happens a couple times. Well, if you know your Bible, you know the angels say, knock it off. I'm a servant of God, just as you stand up, you know, we're all under God. This angel didn't do that. This angel accepts Daniel falling down before him, strengthens him through another angel, but does not say, now don't fall down before me. And that is a very conspicuous lack if you know your angels in the Bible. This one is okay with being worshipped. This one in verse 13 fights the prince of Persia, which is a spiritual being. The Bible seems to indicate, and this is something of a terrifying thought, that there are principalities and powers, spiritual beings, that lord over the nations. You have demonic rule over each people. That's, that's not good. I mean, if you go to Ezekiel, you've got a prophecy about the king of Tyre, but then right after that, you've got a prophecy about the real ruler of Tyre, and it describes the devil. Well, the prince of Persia is a demonic entity with great power ruling over Persia, who is ruling over the whole known world, And this angel has been at war with him, standing toe-to-toe with him, and by the time he gets to Daniel, has overcome him. And when he gets done talking to Daniel, he's going to go back and fight him further, and ultimately the prince of Greece is going to come, another demonic entity, but is going to overthrow the demonic entity that rules Persia. This angel is power. This angel is glory. This angel is something more powerful than we have ever seen, except for God himself. And even angels serve him. When Daniel is down on his face, the angel we met before, because Gabriel is described as being like the sons of men, Gabriel is back. And Gabriel touches Daniel and strengthens him at the command of this glorious angel that receives worship. The prince of the people of God, Michael, 
who is an angel that oversees God's people, uh, may have come and fought side by side with this angel against the prince of Persia. But at the end of our reading, it was this angel who went and strengthened Michael in the great struggle. So Michael, the Lord of the armies of God, as he is described elsewhere, is receiving aid and help from this angel of power, and the angels actually serve him. This is no typical angel. Who is this? In the midweek Bible study, we're working our way through uh, the books of Moses. We're in Exodus chapter 23, and uh, this week we read about an angel that was pretty different than most angels, just like this one. Beginning in verse 20 of chapter 23, uh, we read this. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Now, if you're reading through Exodus up to this point, you know that God has already said there is the angel of God that is in the fire and cloud that's leading the people. And every now and then, that angel is called God himself. In fact, he has a title that shows up a time or two, Malak Yahweh, which means God who is an angel. And here, the angel that is going to go before the people, you are to obey him and don't rebel against him because he won't forgive that. Now, who forgives sins, according to Jesus? Can I forgive your sin? Can, can, can I do that? Can a holy man of any stripe do that? Can an angel do that? Well, certainly not a typical one. Jesus says, only God can forgive sins. Well, this angel won't forgive you if you go against him. This is an angel who can forgive sins. This is Malach Yahweh. This is God who is uh, being an angel, would be the best way to put it. An angel is an emissary sent to do the work of God. Uh, It's someone who comes out of the heavens and comes to this world to do a specific mission. Like, he comes into the world, and the world was created by him, but the world didn't know him. He comes to his own, but his own doesn't receive him. Uh, That kind of mission. Who could this be? In the book of Revelation, in chapter 5, After we get past the Reformed book of Revelation, because you know the joke is we Reformed people think Revelation only has three chapters. Uh, When you get into the beginning of the, the rest of it, you're brought into heaven, and in chapter 5, 
uh, well, this is what happens. I'll, I'll simply read it. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world, all the earth. He, then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. If we're reading Revelation, we know who this lamb is. We know the, the lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world, is Jesus. And you've got this scroll. Nobody can open it. Uh, what are the scroll? And what are the seals? Well, the seals keep it closed, and the scroll is basically the rest of human history. Human history is going to roll out, but who is worthy to open that history? Who is worthy to tear the seals and bring history to bear? Um, no angel, no saint, no spiritual being, but the lamb who was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus is worthy to open the scroll, and in being worthy to open the scroll, it's showing you what the rest of history is going to be about. It's going to be about Jesus the Christ. It's going to roll out his way. It's going to roll out to his glory because he's the only one worthy to open it. And we meet him in the first chapter of Revelation, and this is when we first see him. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were like wool, white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire." His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Does this description remind you of anything? Does it sound kind of similar? A face that is shining, eyes that are on fire, 
a, a, a robe that is golden. Remind you of anybody? It is designed to remind you of somebody because it's the same guy. And it is clearly identified in Revelation as this is Jesus of Nazareth, this is the Messiah, this is God the Son when you see him in his glory. This is when you really recognize who he is. He is the glory of God himself. Uh, You cannot miss him. He is Malach Yahweh, the angel sent by God. That's who Daniel is running into at this moment. He is mourning over the fact that it looks like the ministry of God's people, the very central focus of what it means to be God's people, is being frustrated by the world. And it looks like the world is succeeding. Everything that we have wanted from God, everything that uh, God has promised, it looks like the world is crushing that. And we don't really understand that. How would we understand that? It is causing us to mourn. Uh, we are seeking God with our tears. Uh, it's, it's not the way it's supposed to be. What's going on? Well, Jesus has come to answer Daniel. God the Son has come to answer Daniel. Malach Yahweh, the divine angel, has come to answer Daniel. And he tells Daniel the details of the vision he has seen. And it is very specific. Uh, Next week we'll work our way through it. Uh, Somehow. It's not normally the way I preach, but this is the way the book is set up. But Jesus comes and delivers all these details And tells Daniel, you know, history is a little longer than you may think it is. At the beginning of this chapter, Daniel says the vision is true, but the length of the days of it are long. It is currently the year 2020. What kind of changes among mankind have happened since the year 17? 20. Have there been any significant things happened since that year? You didn't have uh, the United States. That would take place in 1776. You had had the North American continent discovered by men in wooden ships who sailed the world by wind power. The nations of the world were totally different. The languages of the world were different. The technology level of the world was different. What would happen if uh, you and I were dropped off in time in 1720? Think we'd stand out? Think we'd have a hard time figuring out how to live this way? 300 years is a long time. What do you think it will look like when it's 2320? I don't have any idea, but my guess is it would be very different than now. And in 2320, people are going to think back on 2020, uh, and, and they're going to, 2022, and they're going to wonder about us. They're going to think about the ancient past. What were those primitives like? 300 years is a good long time. Well, 
the vision that spans from chapter 11, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 6, will cover 300 years of time. When you read the Bible, centuries can go by in the flash of an eye. A professor of mine pointed out that if you you really don't know how history is working, uh, you can see the Assyrian Empire rise up and disappear in the pages of the Bible, and it gets the feeling like it's a brief amount of time. Assyria just rises up, it, 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 it serves God, and it falls. Well, Assyria was a major player on earth for 250 years, which is how long we've existed for right now. The people of the ancient world did not see Assyria as kind of a blip on the radar. They saw it as a huge chunk of time. Generations came, generations went. This was the world. Um, The vision is going to take a long time, Daniel, because history is a lot longer than you think it is. Uh, But it's going to play out, and I have come to answer your morning. I've come to answer your tears, and I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in minute detail, uh, because I know all the minute details. There is no guesswork here. There is no open theism here where God doesn't know the future and goes, boy, I hope things are better. I know absolutely every event that's going to come, and I'm going to walk you through it like it's a history book. What do you think happens at the end of the vision? It's not the last verse, but it is uh, the focus of the last bit of the vision. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, we read this. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble since as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. It's going to be 300 years, Daniel. And the end of the 300 years is going to be trouble like nobody could believe, but your people will be delivered at the end of the 300 years. Aren't we already delivered? Aren't we already God's people? Aren't we in covenant with God? Well, yes, but this is going to be deliverance. This is going to be a final act. This is going to be an act of God that can be said to be the deliverance of your people, everyone who has written in the book. So this is the elect of God. He's got a book in front of him. He knows everyone who will be delivered. And at the end of these 300 years, the deliverance will happen. All these minute little details that deal with the plots of princes and queens and petty nobles, poisoning of minor officials... All of that, which is going to go on for 300 years, the end of it is going to be the hand of God working in history for the deliverance of your people, the elect of God. That's what it's about. 
In other words, Daniel, I have come to open history for you. And the opening of history points to the great deliverance of God. And I have come as the angel of angels. I have come as God acting as an angel. Only I am worthy to really open history to you because history is about me and history is going to glorify me. It's going to end in deliverance. Who is worthy to open the seals of history? Who is worthy to make one year go into another and finally come to the end of days? It is the Lamb who was slain. It is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is opening the seals. He knows history absolutely intimately. People who will never know his name and have no idea what they're doing is leading up to his glory are all going to do things that will culminate in the salvation of God on Golgotha. 300 years from now, Daniel, the cross, the open tomb, the ascension, the sending of the Spirit, 300 years from now, Daniel, deliverance will be absolutely completed. You see the world frustrating God's church, and you're not wrong. You see wicked people doing wicked things and keeping the worship in Jerusalem from happening. You see lies and deceit and political machinations. But I open history. I know it's every detail. And it will glorify God in the deliverance of his people. I have come to tell you this because it is about me I am the Messiah of God, I am Malach Yahweh, I am God sent into the world, and I will tell you every minute detail that will happen, because it is all in my hand. At this moment, I can't think of a more encouraging message from God. The diabolical powers that run the nations have not exactly gotten mellow in their old age. Every nation has demonic spirits that run it. If there was a prince of Persia, there is a prince of America. And it's a demonic entity, and it's designed to do demonic things, and it does them. And uh, like John the Apostle tells us, you know, beloved, the entire world is in the hands of the devil, But then he goes on to say, but Christ has overcome the world. This is where we're at. We are at a spot where evil things are happening, and if we we consider them, we will join Daniel in his mourning, and we won't be wrong to do it. To fast, to pray, to cry out to God because of the, the wrong of the world, that's a godly thing to do, and that's what we ought to do. We ought to have our hearts broken for the wickedness that we are literally drowning in. But God will answer, and the answer will be, history will glorify me. The prince of Persia will not stop me. I will defeat him. The prince of any nation will not stop me. I will defeat them. Your people will be delivered. My hand will be supreme. Evil will not reign. That's the simple message of this passage. Jesus brings us history to say, I will deliver and it won't be stopped. Thanks be to God.